Hey everyone, welcome to Hub City Church. We are ordinary people following an extraordinary God together. If you want more information about Hub City Church, find us online at thehubcitychurch.com connect and fill out our digital connect card. Now let's dive into this week's message. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what a treat to be with you. Good morning. It's a joy to be here at Hub City. Uh, On a Sunday morning, I've been here all a ton of times during the week. Uh, so it's fun to see people here. I, I've come up often. Um, I've known uh, Sean and April. I actually, I'll, I'll tell a little bit more about my story uh, until this last year, pastored a church in Everett. So uh, the Nults and the Breedens have, have had a lot of uh, great opportunities to share together. And you have two of the best pastors that I know, two of the most wonderful people leading your church. Um, I know they, they bless you and bless this community. I have been blessed so many times. Um, we've done uh, camps together, family camps. I've gone and, and done sermon uh, retreats with Sean. I've called April at, at like the last minute. April, I need help with a graphic question, and she is so generous. Um, you were talking about your community night tonight, and it reminded me of a funny story. I Every year, uh, a group of us pastors would get away, and we would work on our sermon series for the year ahead. And Sean has always been like the fun guy to to come and lead us in games. And then there's another pastor who hates games. So it's always been this really funny thing. Like, every time we sit down, one of the guys is like, oh, I don't want to do any of this. And Sean's so fun, and I love all the games we played. One year, we played, uh, he had just got the game Oregon Trail. And we were trying to convince uh, this other pastor, dude, come on, quit being a wet blanket on the... And like in 16 minutes, we had all died from cholera. Uh, but Sean just made it so much fun for all of us, even in that moment. And then we played some other games. It was just a blast. Um, anytime that I would work with Sean on sermon series, I just appreciated his wisdom and his heart and his pastoral vision. So it was more, instead of collaborating, it was more like kind of copying in high school where I'd be like, Sean, what'd you get for question three? And but no, yeah, that's what I got too, Sean. Really good. Cool idea. I like that one. I'm going to do that too. Uh, so as April said, uh, my name is Ben Breeden. I actually uh, am not pastoring a church. I am not a vocational church attender anymore. About a year ago, I was invited to a new position in the city of Everett. The mayor 
created a new role, and I'm the homeless response coordinator for uh, the city of Everett. Uh, but before that, uh, my wife and I, I've been married. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary. We've got three kids. Uh, yeah, I heard a woo, a woo indeed. Uh, so we've got three kids. Our son is 15, and then we've got a 12-year-old and 9-year-old daughter. Um, and actually, it's, it's weird for me because I've been in vocational ministry for for many, many years, uh, so stepping into this new role has been a transition. Um, I served as a missionary in Mexico for several years, and then my wife and I moved, and I was uh, working on a missionary uh, campus with Youth with a Mission on the big island of Hawaii, suffering for Jesus. Uh, we came back, and I was a staff pastor um, in Stanwood. We were living on Camino Island, really beautiful location. So it should not come as any surprise that we inevitably were called to serve in a church in Everett. We're like, well, I guess our luck has run out for wonderful places. Turns out, actually, I love Everett quite a bit. I was, uh, I, I, I've loved being there, loved pastoring, and I love what I do now. A quick summary of what I do is I um, work within the city uh, departments, police, public works, all the different uh, facets of the city, uh, city government, work on, a co on creating a comprehensive strategy to address homelessness, and I also work with agencies and faith communities, churches, that are also doing that good work to really see how we can row together to address things like uh, homelessness, uh, poverty, drug addiction, behavioral health. Um, so it is a real joy. I love what I get to do now because this is kingdom work. It's not, uh, you know, I, I am not, uh, I just filed my taxes for the first time not as clergy, so that was weird. But I still feel like I get to do the gospel work, the good news that Jesus has a plan and a purpose and a hope for even the dark, difficult places in our world. Um, so April uh, read our passage. If you've got your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Sean told me uh, about the series that you've just started, these questions that Jesus asked. Anybody find the questions that Jesus asked sometimes very frustrating? Am I the only one? Like, dang it, Jesus. He was the master of asking these questions. And if you read through the Gospels, it's not uncommon to find somebody coming to Jesus, in fact, with a question. And Jesus responds with a question. It's like, come on. Come on. That, that's not what I wanted. Anybody here in a committed relationship? Um, I have the same challenge with my own wife that I do sometimes with the questions Jesus asks. I'll be like, hey, babe, uh, what do you want for dinner? Uh, I do a lot of the cooking in my house, so what do you want? We've got chicken. We've got some leftover stew. I've got a frozen lasagna. What would you like for dinner? Oh, I don't know. What do you want for dinner? That's not how questions work, Kristen. I ask something, and you answer. Jesus does the same thing. It's like, I don't know, right? And, and we'll see that today, kind of Jesus uh, answers a question with another question. Um, so April started in verse uh, 20, I believe. I'm going to back up just a few verses, and I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. I'll be reading it out of the ESV, English Standard Version, so it might sound a little bit different than what you read. Uh, but let's read this together. I'm just going to read it out. It says, in verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, that's the context that we're, we're, we're coming into the question that was asked of Jesus. It's the third time Jesus in, in his ministry predicted his death in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Kind of if you start right in the middle, of, uh, chapter 14, they're in the north part of Israel. And Jesus, uh, this is where he feeds 4,000. All these things are going on. And from chapter 14 on, it's kind of this trajectory leading towards Jerusalem. And in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17, Jesus says something similar about prophesying the death of the Messiah. And so here it is the third time that he says that he'll be delivered over to Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Verse 20 says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, on, to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The translation that April read from said, the bitter cup of suffering. And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not for mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared for by my father. And of course, the, the, the verse continues with some really powerful statements about the first being the last and Jesus, the work that was ahead for the church. But the question he asked, simply put, is, are you able to drink from the cup that I'm about to drink from? And it was a rhetorical question because, of course, he said, yes, you will be able to drink from that. And in speaking to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that answer was prophetic because if you're familiar with the, the narrative that unfolds in the book of Acts, James was beheaded by Herod I. He was the first martyr. John, his brother, went on to face all sorts of tribulations and challenges so yes, they were able to drink from that cup. But that was also a prophetic statement for anybody who calls on the name of the Lord who becomes a follower of Jesus. Are you able to drink from this cup? Yeah. Yeah, you are. You are able to, to drink from this cup. And sometimes that's challenging for us. That, that, that sounds unpalatable. I love the way he asked the question, though. Are you able to drink from this cup? It's kind of like a no-brainer from the perspective of Jesus. Are you able to drink? It does not sound like an appealing cup to me, I'll be honest. Right? Any, a, another question for in your household. Anybody ever have somebody uh, get out the gallon of milk from the fridge, smell it? Will you smell it? Is this bad? This milk, does it smell bad to you? It smells curdled. I'm going to trust you on that one, Right? You don't need me to, to, to smell that. If it smells bad for you, I'm going to believe it's going to smell bad for me. Are you able to drink from this cup of suffering? Ugh. Yeah. 
Jesus says, yeah, you will. I don't want to. I don't want to drink from the bitter cup of suffering. I don't want to smell your milk. But that's where Jesus is drawing us into this, this reality, because it's a rhetorical statement, really. It's a, it's a picture of and the truth of the world that we're living in. Yes, as a matter of fact, Jesus says, you will drink from this cup. Yes, you're going to smell the sour milk. He promised us. I mean, this wasn't the first time. John chapter 16, Jesus was with his disciples. And he says, hey, listen, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Guess what? In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I said, thanks, Sean. I am excited. Thanks for letting me talk about suffering. Uh, that's a delight. Really good. Um, that's what we're going to talk about. Actually, it's very apropos. We're going to talk about suffering. I want to talk a little bit about how a, a, some, a biblical way to approach that reality that Jesus invites us into. He says, yeah, absolutely. You're going to drink from this cup. And then I want to talk about four things that we could learn, four ways that we can grow in trusting the Lord when it comes to suffering, to challenges, to hardship. Because that is our reality. We just celebrated Easter a couple weeks ago. And that's the point when Jesus, in obedience to the Father, went willingly to the cross that was set before him. The three days later, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was resurrected defeating the power of sin and death. But when Jesus was on the cross, there were seven statements that, that, were sta that we can see throughout the Gospels. And I would say that the world that we live in is framed by two of those. In one moment on the cross, Jesus looked to the thief on his side and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then at another point, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I really believe that our human experience, as followers of Jesus particularly, very specifically, I want to speak to followers of Jesus um, because Jesus has expectations for us to respond. I would say our experience, our world, our human narrative, wherever you're at in your journey as a disciple, is captured somewhere between that, those two, uh, uh, the spectrum of, Today you'll be with me in paradise, and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all experience that. We all fall somewhere in there, and every day might be different for you. Today I might be closer to, today I might, I'll be with you in paradise. Some other times, like, I am right there with you, Jesus. Why do I feel forsaken? What do we do with this? In my current role working for the city of Everett, I'm constantly confronted with the broken reality that humanity at large is, is, is just a participant of. I see the realities of our brokenness with regard to homelessness, drug addiction, behavioral health, mental health, poverty, all of those things. I see that in the world around. And I'm sure many of you have seen and maybe have experienced some of those very drastic, very significant points of brokenness, maybe. But what about for us as followers of Jesus? Because for many of us, that level of poverty, that level of brokenness might be something that we come in proximity with, but we don't live into that, right? 
I, I can say that I've never experienced the hardships and the brokenness that I've, I've been near or around in this world. So what do we do when we have our own picture of brokenness, our own pain, our own unique suffering? It's actually interesting to talk with you about this today because my wife and I were recently kind of processing this in our own family dynamics. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter has been having some challenges with a couple of her, her um, subjects at school. And we're just trying to figure out where does this come from? What's happening? Because it's, of course, compounding and rolling into different areas of her life. And if any of you have three children, you realize your third child wields an incredible amount of power in your family, right? So if nine-year-old suffering, we're all suffering a little bit in our house right now. So we were talking about this, and my wife had this incredible realization, like, oh, we're less than a year removed from a pretty significant period of time. Anybody remember the last few years of our lives? And then she, she, she recognized this, like, our nine-year-old daughter has spent nearly a quarter of her life in a global pandemic. Oh, okay, of course there might be some repercussions that we didn't foresee. Is it weird to anybody that we're not even a year away from that? Like, my life has moved on, and I'm just kind of moving forward. But sometimes it strikes me, oh, my goodness. We all just went through a, and I don't want to get into the politics of it, not at all. I don't want to, but the reality was, it was a pretty lame time for most all of us. Can we all agree with that? It was challenging. For the follower of Jesus, man, it, it is really hard sometimes to get back on track when you're derailed by something. And I don't do grief very easily, to be perfectly honest with you. I make inappropriate jokes at inappropriate times when I'm in the middle of hard, hard seasons of my life. And I would contend that American Christianity, we're not actually... Uh, um, we're not programmed to deal with suffering very well as a whole. And that's a broad generalization, I realize. But largely, my, my, my experience with American spirituality, American Christianity, is we tend to want it to be up and to the right. And when we have a downturn, we hit a roadblock, we hit an obstacle, we hit a, a, a season of difficulty, it really throws a lot of us off, doesn't it? I don't know what to do with those times. I don't know what to do with that. And, and I've come to the point where I have to recognize that, that, that it's okay to be in that place. Is that, have you ever been in those hard times where you, where you don't even know how to, am I the emotion? Am I feeling pain right now? Am I feeling confusion, frustration? A am I experiencing anger at the Lord? Anybody ever felt shocked or angry? And directed that at the Lord? God, I thought we were in this together. What happened? I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I put a check in the tithe box, you take care of all my other needs. Anybody ever kind of had that argument with the Lord? You're supposed to do your side of the bargain, God, and it doesn't seem like you are. And the truth is that is not the reality, that is not what has been promised to us through Scripture. And I've wrestled with this so much, especially in the last 18 months of my life, friends. 
I'll tell you, pastoring a church is a tough gig. And pastoring in the last three years, actually, let me tell you this, I didn't have gray hairs until like a year ago. That's how hard, I mean, I didn't have any wrinkles. It's a tough gig. I wrestle with this stuff a lot. And I've been in times recently where I was like, Lord, man, this, this stinks. That's my church edited version. And then I watched a, a YouTube video. Um, does anybody know who Eugene Peterson is? Uh, he, he, he transliterated the, the message, which is kind of a modern translation of scripture. Great theologian and another wonderful theologian, a guy named Paul David Houston. You might know him as Bono from YouTube. They sat down and they had this talk at, at Eugene Peterson's place in, in uh, Montana. This was before Eugene passed away a couple years ago. And I watched this video with Bono and with Eugene Peterson, and it really gave me a whole new framework from which to engage with the Lord and which to engage with the challenges in my life. Because Bono was talking about how he grew up in a, in a, in a religious household. He grew up in, in England with, with all sorts of spiritual, spirituality around him. But it wasn't until he sat with the Psalms and saw the realities of human expression being communicated to the Heavenly Father. The, what's communicated in the Psalms Bono was talking about was this authentic place of genuine, honest communion with the creator of heaven and earth. And I started to read through these Psalms. Listen, I've been a professional churchgoer for a lot of years, so I've preached out of the Psalms, I've talked about them, I've used them in my own prayers, I've taken biblical classes about the Psalms, but I sat with them almost for the, for the first time with this beautiful picture. And I, it resonated with me. I, I read these Psalms, like Psalm 6. You can go through the Psalms and see this all throughout. Psalm 6, the psalmist writes, My soul is greatly troubled. How long, O Lord? Anybody ever been there? Psalm 10, why do you stand far away from me? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I've felt that one. Here's one that might be familiar. Jesus quoted this one on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries and anguishes? I was starting to connect with the Psalms and with suffering in a new way. Psalm 13 How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long must I have sorrow in my heart? That's been me before. When are you gonna do something, God? Anybody ever ask God that? Maybe quietly so nobody else hears you ask that question. That makes sense to me. That language gives me a voice when I'm confronted with sorrow, when I'm confronted with the brokenness in my own life. Because guess what I've learned? I had no idea how to fix things during the pandemic. I had no idea. I was wrong on just about every decision I made leading a church. I was batting a thousand for wrong. I don't know how to fix things in my home sometimes. Guess what? I've got a nine-year-old. I can't fix her scholastic problems. I am powerless to fix the problems 
that all three of my kids are going through, powerful to deal with those external forces that end up throwing me for a loop. And what I've discovered is that I can be real with God in those points. I could be honest. I could tell God exactly how I'm feeling. Jesus, that's, I, I, I would say that's one of the reasons why Jesus went to the Psalms so often in, in the teachings that we th- see throughout the gospel because it's this model of authenticity that we get to emulate in speaking with the creator of heaven and earth. And you know what it tells me about God? It tells me that God has a love that's so great and so deep that God's love can absorb my anger and my questions. When I realize that I can come to God with all of my emotions, not just the happy ones, boy, it changes everything. And you know what? We see that actually through Scripture. The people of God, the Hebrew people, had a beautiful way of engaging with what Jesus offered us, this bitter cup of suffering. This wasn't, the, this wasn't a new concept. Oh, you're going to deal with hardships? Oh, geez. No, they're, they're, throughout Scripture, throughout the Hebrew Bible, God's people went through some really difficult things. And they engaged with their creator, with their heavenly father, through something called lament. And I've discovered that God's people throughout scripture had this relationship that allowed for the fullness of the emotions that sometimes I try and hide from people when I'm faced with the cup of suffering that Jesus talked about. In fact, of these 150 psalms, fully a third of those are psalms of lament. They're psalms crying out to the Lord in hardship. The wisdom literature, books like Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Book of Job. You want to hear a fun, night, uh, fun read? Read Job. So this question, can you drink from this cup? It really is a rhetorical question because Jesus knew the answer is yes. You'll be presented with this cup of sorrow. But guess what? There's a model for how we can process through it. This biblical model of lament. And I just want to look at four of these, excuse me, four of these briefly of how we can process, how we can engage with the cup of suffering. First, I think it's really important to remember that lament, the way we process in a godly way, lament, it is a form of praise. Those Psalms I read out, how long, O Lord? Why have you forsaken me? That is a method of praise. When we're confronted with our suffering, my prayer is that we would discover that we can praise the Lord through those hard things. And I want to maybe define the terms a little bit to clarify because often what I see with lament can easily be confused with complaining. We often use those interchangeably, but they're different. And I'll show you two distinct examples in the book of Exodus, a a crying out to the Lord in lament and a complaint. In Exodus chapter 2, if you're familiar with the narrative, God's people, uh, the descendants of Abraham, have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. This is before Moses came and rescued them, before all the, the things that took place, but they're enslaved. It says, during those years, Exodus chapter 2 says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
They didn't even have an identity as God's chosen people at this point. They were people of promise, not yet people of purpose. But they cried out in lament, Lord, this is a terrible spot. That's lament. But then if you follow the narrative account through Exodus, God sends Moses and there's the, you know, kind of the, the thing with all the plagues that took place. And God, through his mighty right arm, rescued Israel, bless you. And God brought, drew them out from slavery and bondage and brought them toward the promised land. And there's the crossing of the Red Sea, all sorts of miracles. They're following a pillar of smoke and fire. Incredible things. You get to Exodus chapter 16 and all of this stuff is going on. And Israel gets hungry and thirsty, and they complain to Moses. They complain to the Lord. You brought us out of Egypt to die of hunger? What kind of God are you? We're thirsty. Later on in, in Exodus 32, they don't even, they, they don't even uh, trust Moses enough, and they craft their own images of God, these golden calves. We don't know if we, we don't even know where Moses is. Do you see the difference between lament and complaining? A complaint is an accusation against God that maligns God's character. Lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in God's character. Lament is a form of praise because I'm appealing to God based on God's own character. Excuse me. So when you and I are faced with this cup of suffering, we have the opportunity to appeal to God based on God's character or the opportunity to accuse and malign God. James 3 says, you cannot speak praise and curse out of the same mouth. We get to choose. Lament is a form of praise. Second, lament is a proof of the relationship that we have. Again, Brokenness is a reality of the human experience. I think we can all agree on, on that. But coming to the Lord in those times of brokenness, those times of suffering, in a heart of lament is proof of the relationship. Israel brought lament to the Lord throughout the Psalms, throughout the, the scriptures, and, and these were not some vain attempt just to get some distant God's attention. Lord, hey, we're over here. Lament is recognizing the re unique relationship that God has with God's people and asking, asking God to act accordingly. Engaging with suffering in an attitude of praise is a demonstration of our relationship. Scripture says that through Jesus, we who were once far have been brought near. We've been adopted. Let me read Romans chapter 8. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Demonstration of relationship, right? And if children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Lament is a form of praise. It is a proof of the relationship. I see this all the time with my kids. How many times did I tell them on a weekend, like Friday night, hey, guys, I love you, but I want you to sleep in because I want to sleep in. And how many times am I woken up? Hey, I'm hungry. I love you so much. But guess what? I get up and engage and care for not because they've earned it, not because they're entitled, but because we have a relationship. I'm blessed with my children. It's proof of our relationship with God when we engage with lament, when we engage with sorrow. Third, lament is a prayer for God to act. I just said that it's not just calling out to a distant deity because we have been brought near, right, through Jesus Christ. But it's not just crying out. Like sometimes we just need to go be alone and have a good cry Maybe have a little scream session. That's healthy. That's okay. But lament is also a prayer for God to act. It's not just an outlet. I think that's very important to be able to have an outlet for emotion. I see that in the Psalms. Sometimes you just have to say, boy, this really stinks. But I'm also anticipating that God is at work. God is not passive. Or excuse me, prayer is not passive. Lament and sorrow is not a passive thing in our lives. Because we're trusting that God is at work. Lament is a way to petition God. The Hebrew word for here, Shema, it appears just in the Psalms 79 times. We're saying, God, listen. Take action on our behalf. Lament appeals to God's character and God's covenants and asks for God's attention and action. I think that's what Jesus was directing us to when Jesus taught us how to pray. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he wasn't giving them just something to, to do, like, hey, here's another prayer. Why don't you just add this one to your list? Jesus was inviting us to participate in the arrival of the kingdom. Even in our hardships, we are anticipating the arrival of God's kingdom in the middle of my mess. That's why Jesus taught us, your will be done here in my suffering as it is in heaven, here in my sorrow as it is in heaven, your will be done. If you read through Paul's letters, the letters, uh, the epistles, Corinthians, Romans, go on down the list, you'll see Paul again and again writing into these early churches and they were prayers of supplication, prayers that God would be at work. Not just prayers that, boy, it's a bummer to hear you're going through some hard stuff. Mmm. I pray that God would be at work here as it is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Sounds like the cup of suffering has been served up pretty hot for Paul, huh? Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Jesus is at work when we trust him with our sorrow and our hardship. God is at work in your life. Sometimes it's that's all the faith that we've got. We were singing those songs today about, about the victory, about the mighty fortress, and I'll tell you, sometimes there's been points in my life where I sing those songs, but it's a faith. And Hebrews says that faith is hope in things not yet seen. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what victory looks like right now, but I'm trusting you. 
I don't feel like I'm living in a fortress right now. I feel like I'm battered and bruised, but I'm trusting you. That is the life of Jesus becoming manifest even in the face of sorrow and hardship. Finally, when it comes to the cup of sorrow, I said that lament is a form of praise. I said that lament, engaging with our sorrow in a godly way, is proof of a relationship. And it's a prayer for God to act. Finally, lament is participation in the pain of others. And I think that that is an important distinction because I would not want to be a follower of Jesus that's so myopic that says, all I care about is my suffering. I don't think that we see that modeled anywhere in Scripture. God's work is always at work in community. There's distinct, unique, transformative work in my life, but it takes place often and is demonstrated and reflected in this. And what I've been discovering is that some of the benefits of practicing lament in my own hard, difficult places is that it draws me together with followers of Jesus here around the world. It's something that, 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 that takes place when, when I see God at work in my mess. It gives me faith for God to be at work in others' mess. And that's reciprocated as well. I think God is at work in we, not just me. And trusting the Lord with my sorrow, with my suffering, with my difficult circumstances, learning how to lament, how to come as honestly and candidly as possible is something that I've experienced watching others do that is a blessing for me. It encourages me. It shapes my faith. And we love our neighbor when we allow their experience of pain to become the substance of our prayers. This is one of the great commandments Jesus said. And I believe that coming into that mess, sometimes just sitting quietly in the mess of somebody that somebody has, a safe place to do that, and trusting that God is at work is the best thing that we can do. When Jesus said, hey, listen, you want to drink of this bitter cup of suffering? I'll sit with you. Next week, I'll be back up here. I'm excited to be up here. I, just, I, I wanna kind of put a little comma on this because as much as I'm grateful for Jesus bringing this into my own life, that it's okay to come with all my brokenness, my suffering, my hardship, I also want to give you hope that that's not where we're left. Psalm 23 talks about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Sometimes, I feel like I've been set up to go camping in the valley of the shadow of death. That's where I'm sitting, and it's like, hey, Lord, anytime, I'll take some of that comfort that you talked about and a roadmap out of here. That's not the end of the story, friends, because the next question that we'll look at next week, Jesus asks this beautiful question. You want to be well? Uh, yeah. So we'll go from there. I don't want you to feel like all is doom and gloom that we're just gonna deal with suffering. That's our lot. Let's get all Eeyore up in here. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll just lament. So we're moving towards the promises, the completion that Jesus promised. We're sitting in mess sometimes here and now. But I wanna finish with this thought. I wanna come back to Exodus 
Exodus chapter 2, where I, I kind of gave that, that, that quick snapshot of, of um, lament by Israel. They're crying out. They're oppressed. They're persecuted. And here's the response from God. One of the most powerful, this is probably one of my most favorite passages of Scripture in the whole the whole thing here, I love this because it says this, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered God's covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I love that. I love that. Because when I'm in the middle of the weeds, when I'm in the darkest places, when I'm feeling all of the hurts, all of the emotions, all of the brokenness, when I'm invited to drink deeply from the, from the uh, big gulp-sized cup of bitterness that the world has handed it to me, that Jesus has told me I'm going to be drinking, here's what I know is true. God hears you. God remembers God's promises. God sees you, and God knows. Sometimes we're just sitting in a place trusting the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit can do. But God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. Could we pray? We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you want to take your next step in following Jesus, fill out the digital connect card at thehubcitychurch.com slash connect. We'd love to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life. 